because of the time and place in which we find ourselves, already beginning really in the Enlightenment, the church understood through Vatican II that the way in which we address the world can no longer presuppose Christianity. We're evangelizing a secular world that has lost its appreciation for transcendence, for beauty, for truth. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am happy to be joined by Father Blake Britton to discuss Vatican II. Welcome to the show, Father. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. And uh, so Father Blake Britton is a priest of the Diocese of Orlando, Florida, and a member of the Word on Fire Institute under Bishop Robert Barron. And uh, he's recently written a book published by Word on Fire Press called Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. Uh, So thanks again for being on my show today, Father. Oh, of course. It's a privilege, and thank you for inviting me. Yes. And so it's always fun, by the way, when we have, uh, you know, authors and books. Yeah. how did you get interested in writing a book on Vatican II? Quite providentially. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to write a book today. <laughs> it's something that the Lord, over time, develops within your heart, within your soul. So for me, I was first became interested with the Second Vatican Council uh, through an old Irish Monsignor. And I feel like all of us have met at least one of those in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was named Monsignor David Page. He was actually present at Vatican II as a secretary yes. to mm-hmm. one of the bishops mm-hmm. who were participating in the council. And he started to regale me really with stories of Vatican II and sort of the fascination that uh, revolved around it. And this is what initially piqued my interest in so far as researching the council. I was about 18 at the time. And uh, little by little, I just fell more deeply in love with the wisdom, with the genius, with the orthodoxy of Vatican II. And then as I started studying Vatican II more deeply, I became more also ingratiated, sort of more aware, if you will, of some of the tensions that lie around the topic of Vatican II, specifically between what I now label as paraconciliarism, what's popularly called liberalism, Mm -hmm. and traditionalism, which is popularly called uh, conservatism. But I think those two uh, terms are much more appropriate. So paraconciliarism, traditionalism, as I became more aware of sort of the the disagreements or the tensions in those two opposing camps, if you will, it it reoriented my research to try to understand what can we do to ease some of these tensions And what can we do to also return to the original intention of the council? One of the things that I noticed is that each of these camps made claims equally about Vatican II that were also equally untrue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Or they perceived certain things in the name of Vatican II that were not necessarily within the document text themselves. So also, what could I do as a priest of the church to help dispel some of those narratives and to refocus it on the original intention of the council? So that's sort of what eventually led to the publication of the book. Wow, that's uh, really, really well put. And uh, it's it's interesting because I, I really, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that uh, I think you have seven chapters, mm-hmm. two chapters setting up the situation, mm-hmm. and then four chapters on the four major documents. So you actually not only help us to understand how Vatican II has been misunderstood or perhaps um, uh, even, you know, like abused at different times, or at least the ideas that people have used it for their own interests, but also really what does it actually teach? Right. right. Because these four uh, these four major documents right on the liturgy, on 
revelation on the church and then the church in the world are really kind of the cornerstone of uh, the doctrinal teaching about who Jesus Christ is, how he transforms our lives, how he, in a certain sense, transforms the world, and how we can not only come to get to know him, but how we can help others do the same. Exactly. Uh, There's one of the primary goals of the book, to dispel the narratives so that we might Mm-hmm. return to the beauty of the council itself that yeah. unfortunately sometimes mm-hmm. is detracted from because yeah. of these inner conflicts, if you will, that are happening sure. within the church. The documents themselves are utterly superb. The yeah. sad fact is that m- that many, many Catholics don't know anything about them. You know? yes. And I'm not saying that accusatorily in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying in general that that's something uh, that's a bit of a tragedy because they're magnificent and they could really build up the faith of God's people if we were able to read them firsthand. So that's yeah. also one of the main goals of the book is to get people inspired to study Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Now, when I came back to uh, the faith, I converted back to really first Christianity and then to Catholicism in the early 90s. Uh, It was very popular at that time, right? The early 90s, still kind of the end of the 70s and 80s to have, uh, you'd often hear people talking about the spirit of Vatican II (laughs) and the spirit of Vatican II was always moving Right. And uh, unfortunately, far beyond the letter of Vatican II. So (laughs) So I thought you gave a really helpful kind of way of understanding, uh, like, how did that happen? So could you describe a little bit about how the the spirit of the spirit of the council became separated from that? the letter of the council? Most certainly, most certainly. And I, I never say the spirit of Vatican II without making the sound of a ghost, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Ooh, it's always sort of that, that haunting thing, right? The spirit yeah. of Vatican II. Mm-hmm. But uh, that originated in what I call the para-council. Now I okay. stole that um, vocabulary word from Henri de Lubac, a famous 20th century Jesuit. Um, he first identifies what we call the para-council in a, a lovely essay that he wrote at the end of one of his books. Uh, and in there, this is within two decades of the closing session, he is already noting that there is a group of theologians and also popular media personalities who are starting to become sort of a counter magisterium Mm. in their interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. So taking that idea of Delubac, I then did some more research and I was able to delineate uh, three aspects of the para-council that lead to the spirit of Vatican II. If I may, for some listeners who might not be familiar with that expression, what does para mean there? P-A-R-A, para-council, para-conciliar? Yeah, para-conciliar would be almost like an alternative council or um, Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. way of having the council. Uh, We we say this sometimes even in the liturgy, a para-liturgical activity is this activity that we do which has a liturgical bent but is developed alongside the actual intention of the liturgy itself. Uh, And so the same thing would be true of the council. So Mm -hmm. you have the actual council, then you have the para-council, which is this this other sort of narrative that is perpendicular, if you will. It's almost like the council and then the counterfeit council or potentially. Very much so. Okay. Very much so. Yeah, the paracouncil is not a positive thing okay. <laughs> by any means. Mm-hmm. That is a negative connotation, most certainly. And uh, and so the, the paracouncil, taking that idea from De Lubac, uh, I was able to then, through study and research, uh, delineate three aspects of the paracouncil. Yeah. And, and these are the Council of the, Magist- Council of the uh, Theologians, the Council of the Media, and the Council of the Age. So first, the Council of the Theologians. 
It's no secret that there are multiple theologians at Vatican II and afterwards who were disappointed by the council. Why? Because the council did not approve, meaning the magisterium, the 2,500 bishops who participated, did not approve of their particular theological ideologies, um, even if they did integrate some aspects. So there are multiple heavy hitters at Vatican II. You had Karl Rahner, you had Edward Skilebeck, you had Yves Congar, Delubach, Ratzinger, Karol Wojtyla, etc. Uh, and some of their ideas were confirmed by the magisterium, and some of them were not, which is all part of the conciliar process. But in the post-conciliar period, so those first several decades after the closing session, we had groups of these theologians who, disenchanted by the conciliar process, decided to use the name of Vatican II, sort of masquerade underneath it, unfortunately, uh, in order to promote their own theological ideologies. And this was aided and embedded by what I call the Council of the Media. Now, Vatican II was the first council in church history to actually be covered by mass technological media, so television, radio, newspapers, etc. And that uh, brought along with itself uh, certain presuppositions, specifically from American media. Uh, We know that, that American media is always political. We're a political nation. That's just part of our character. You go back to 1776, it's been that way. The the conflict between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the Federalists and the Republicans, right? So this has always been part of our dynamic. The issue is when you project this dynamic onto the Catholic Church, it's inappropriate, it's inadequate. Um, And so what happened was America media started to report on the happenings of the council as they would on American politics. And this is also when you first start getting into the common sort of vernacular of the church, if you will, the notion of conservative and liberal Catholics. That was not common language before the Second Vatican Council. That was brought about strictly by American media coverage of the council. And this is also during the 60s, right, when you start have progressives, you have liberal and progressive Uh, social, political things, and then conservative. So then they just took that same model of liberal and progressives and placed it right onto the council. Political, liberals and progressives versus conservatives and reactionaries. Oh, most certainly. And you can read excerpts from uh, the New York Times in 1961, for example, where they ascribe certain bishops by name as liberal or conservative. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we still have holdouts of that nowadays in the church, Mm -hmm. where even uh, in current media, you'll hear the label of, well, that's a liberal bishop, Mm -hmm. that's a conservative bishop, or that's Mm -hmm. a liberal Catholic. That's uh, wrong, very poisonous, very deadly for the faith. Uh, That's something that's not appropriate for ecclesiology, it's not appropriate for theology, because the church, of course, transcends and supersedes political boundary. It's something that's so much more rich and beautiful. So we have to have vocabulary that's adequate to, to her nature. Um, and that's why I always distinguish between paracouncil and traditionalism. Or if we want to talk about right and wrong, it's just orthodoxy or unorthodoxy. It's, you know, yeah. you're Catholic or you're not Catholic. Um, so those are much better ways to, to discern it. You alluded to the 60s and 70s. That actually is a perfect segue to the final part of the paracouncil, which is the council of the age. Mm-hmm. We know that the 60s, 70s, and even up to the 80s under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, Reagan, uh, that it was it was a very turbulent time in American history. You had multiple things taking place, not least of which the civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, drugs, rock and roll, assassination John F. K., assassination of MLK, Cold War, etc. There's so much happening in that time, yeah. and amidst that, also implementing a council. This brought with it all of its own kinds of particular issues um, and cultural significances. So combine that now with an age that is primed 
to rebel against the establishment, which you alluded to a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. That was very popular, mm-hmm. you know, in the 60s and 70s. That was in vogue, this kind of notion, I'm going to stick it to the man. Well, there's no one that's more the man than the Catholic Church. I mean, we're the <laughs> oldest single institution on the planet. And so uh, if you really want to stick it to the man, a lot of Catholics from the 60s and 70s claimed, well, you got to stick it to the hierarchy. You have to stick it to this old pre-Vatican II church. And some of that vocabulary is still around too. Well, that's pre-Vatican II. You know, that's pre, we, we don't do that. So it's almost as if, you know, 1959 or 1960 was year zero in the life of the church and we have to continue a new church. Um, that's why that one hymn is horrible, sing a new church into being. And I was like, <laughs> no, that's, that's a heretical hymn. We don't sing a new yes. church into being. Mm-hmm. The church has been founded on the rock of Jesus Christ. It's 2000 years old. And of course the church continues to mature and continues to grow in her understanding and wisdom as John Henry Newman says, but that's never at the cost of her tradition or her beauty. So yeah. and Vatican II is very explicit about that on multiple occasions. So that's really what um, the Paracouncil, the spirit of Vatican II mm-hmm. comes from is that this paraconciliar thought starts developing this language of the spirit of Vatican II in order to sever themselves from the original text so that they might freely theologize in their own ideologies and promote them in the name of the council itself. Wow. Well, um, yeah, you can really see then how if you have almost three kind of para-councils or counterfeit councils that are going on amongst and with the, you know, uh, you know, as they would have uh, kind of infiltrated, I don't know how else to put Mm -hmm, it, but mm -hmm. certainly uh, that these ideas became very influential on uh, seminary professors, yes, very much on so. priests, on on bishops throughout the world, uh, as they're kind of trying to navigate this. These right. people claim to speak with authority, and uh, we began to get this kind of shift. Right, uh, and so what then happened in a way in terms of trying to recover the authentic teaching of the council. Yeah, so multiple things happened. Uh, So paraconciliarism really took its roots, 60s, 70s, 80s, still, of course, has longstanding consequences now. Uh, There were two reactions that happened because of that. One of them very positive, one of them negative. Both of them, of course, having seeds of truth, as all things do. Mm -hmm. So the one negative would be the rise of what we call traditionalism. Now, let me make a very clear distinction here. To be traditional is an outstanding thing, and we should all be traditional, right? (laughs) So that's a very, very good thing. Traditionalism is something quite different. Traditionalism is the ossification, the stagnation. What that basically means is it's the petrification, if you will, of a certain time period in the life of the church, saying that that time period was the definitive fullness of the church alone, apart from the rest of her history, and that that time period or the practices and pieties of that time period are universally applicable for all time and are superior to all other manifestations of the faith. Uh, And so you'll get that sometimes in traditionalist movements is this notion that anything that was not explicitly stated in the Council of Trent or in the Baltimore Catechism or the extraordinary form of the liturgy cannot be truly considered Catholic. But then my question becomes, who discerns that? Who has the authority to make that claim? Well, it's only those to whom the office has been entrusted. Yeah. I can't make that claim. I don't have the office of liturgical expression in the life of the church that re- resides in the papacy and the magisterium. So traditionalism becomes dangerous insofar as it becomes a, an abstraction or a disembodiment from the organism of the church. Now, that being said, traditionalism, of course, hits on many fantastic points insofar as the need for solemnity and beauty in the liturgy, the need for proper catechesis, the critique of paraconciliarism, which yes. is very true, recognizing the misimplementation of Vatican II. So there are many things that traditionalists bring up 
which are quite appropriate. But the way and maybe some of the ideas that flow from that, from both personal woundedness, many traditionalists have experienced wounds um, insofar as witnessing liturgical abuses that offended them, um, feeling like they've been gypped in their own catechesis or formation, and so there's a reaction in that direction. Uh, the primary person who started doing that, of course, was Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, um, who eventually founds the SSPX, and he does that um, originally with a very good intention, uh, with no desire whatsoever to break away from Vatican II, because he voted for all the documents of Vatican II, um, including Sacrosanctum Concilium. Well, so Lefebvre voted for all the documents oh, and certainly. actually supported Absolutely. Vatican II? He supported Vatican uh, II. He says that also yes. in the post-conciliary years. Mm -hmm. And he, he himself, in his journal and in his letters, it's quite fascinating, he'll state very clearly that what is happening in the name of Vatican II, so he doesn't use the same language as De Lubac, yeah. but what he's alluding mm -hmm. to, of course, is the paracouncil yeah. and to the spirit of, of Vatican II. What's happening in the name of Vatican II is not what he voted for. Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah. this is not what the bishops intended. And he recognized that. And the purpose of the SSPX was to sort of be a stalwart against some of that inventive sort of um, uh, experimental, if you will, liturgical expression that was mm -hmm. happening in the so-called spirit of Vatican II. Of course, we know the story with the SSPX. Unfortunately, um, some disobedience creeped in and eventually it led to some real tensions. Lefebvre yeah. was reconciled by Pope Benedict before his death, which is quite beautiful. Um, yeah. So we thank God for that. And I think if I may, I Please. heard you give a talk recently on, uh, on Vatican II and uh, you you quoted some numbers, right? Oh, yes. You said there were almost twenty five hundred bishops Correct. that were present, and what were some of the? You remember some of those numbers? I think you yeah. said something. There were what was it like? So let's just use the document on the liturgy for example. So out of twenty five hundred bishops, yeah. over twenty four hundred, so two thousand four hundred voted in favor. Only four voted against. Wow. That's an yes. astronomical figure. Uh -huh. Okay. Like yes. thinking, so yes. imagine if our Lord. Senate voted that way on things. <laughs> we can barely yes, get yes. a vote of 50 to 51. Yeah. Uh -huh. Sometimes the vice president has to break the vote on things. Yeah. At Vatican II, with over 2,000 bishops, well, 99.9% .9 of them okay. agreed on every single major constitution. Yeah. The ones of greater debate were some of the minor constitutions, such as the one on religious liberty and et cetera. Um, but the four major constitutions, I'm not talking yeah. just a majority, I'm talking a super majority, yeah. always over 2,000, always okay. over 2,000, with a negative between the range of four to seven, four to eight. Four to eight votes. Yes. Out of 2,500. Out of 2,500 for all wow, the so that really four. So this really is a consensus expression Very much of so. the deposit of faith as judged by the successors of the apostles. On both the East and the West. Yeah. That's also an important point. This was not a Latin council, this yeah. was an ecumenical council. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you had the East and the West with magisterial papal authority expressing, that gives an extra kind yeah. of credence to, to, of course, the dignity and the teaching of Vatican II. So to end with just some of the reactions yeah. real quickly, what's been the positive reaction, however, to paraconciliarism? It's been this ressourcement. What that means is it's been this uh, deep question to say, yes, we need tradition, we need beauty, we need orthodoxy. But yes, we also need a sense of renewal and focus for the postmodern, post-Christian world. So how can we do both these things without compromising each other? How can we live the dynamism of the Christ event, which we call the incarnation in the Catholic Church? How can we embody our ancestral tradition and not lose its solemnity and dignity 
while at the same time reaching those who are outside the stratus of the church, that are ad extra ecclesiam, that are outside of the church. And from that is birthed people like St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. You see specifically in Joseph Ratzinger in a very brilliant way, this unbelievable ethos of Catholicism, which is this ability to lose nothing and to gain everything. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think is an important principle as we move forward is if we are truly being Catholic, we're not actually losing any part of our identity. But if we're truly being Catholic, we're also constantly expanding and deepening our identity at the same time. And here's the flaw of, of both paraconciliarism and traditionalism. Paraconciliarism loses our identity. Traditionalism use, loses the deepening of our identity, the expansion, the maturation of our identity. So if we're able to find a balance between those two things, then we find Catholicism. And that's why I think Ratzinger really yeah. embodied yeah, and you know, and I think Ratzinger, with a couple other theologians, was part of right after the Council Concilium was right. a journal that became the para oh, conciliar so. <laughs> and really just kind of made up doctrine and morals as as they saw fit. And so he returned back and founded Communio, yes, uh, which was that sense of no, we need to seek the authentic uh, conciliar teaching in right. connection and continuity and communion with the tradition. Yes. Uh, it's also the case that John Paul II would describe at a couple points, right? His pontificate, mm -hmm. uh, which went from what, 1978 yeah, over 20 years <laughs> to 2005. So as really all about, he was at the council and uh, that his, Pontificate was dedicated to the implementation of Vatican yes, II. Yes. Could you say a little bit about John Paul II? Oh and my! <laughs> as this, uh, what 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 was he doing, and what were some yeah. of the ways that we might, like, what well, maybe some specific instances that we could see connections between maybe his teachings and what he saw was the genuine letter for and, sure and, and spirit sure. of that that's a whole another podcast yes <laughs> he's uh, i mean he's an amazing saint one of the greatest saints in church history by far um there's a reason why they add on to his name typically the great uh, which i think is quite worthy saint john paul ii as you mentioned present at vatican ii his real brainchild was of course gaudium espes um his fingerprints are all over it at that time he was bishop carol vertiwa um, and you can see of course reminiscence of Gaudium Spes in his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis. And then later on in the 1980s, his famous audiences, which we now call the Theology of the Body. So there's a continuity in Carol Wojtyla's thought that goes all the way through his papacy and this desire to implement what he really uh, focused on more than anything was actually the anthropology of Vatican II, um, was the, the Christ event of Vatican II. And this is something else I think that we need to appreciate. It takes at least 100 to 150 years to properly implement a council. This is a fact of history. If you go back even to Chalcedon and Ephesus, for example, immediately following the Council of Ephesus, St. Vincent of Laurent wrote a whole document called the Commentarium, which was dedicated to the proper interpretation and implementation of the Council of Ephesus because so many people were misinterpreting its original intention. So this has been an ongoing issue since the early uh, centuries of the church. And that's okay. That's part of being a living body. I mean, you don't learn how to walk right away. You sort of crawl, then you stumble around, then you start to walk, and then you start to run. Uh, so we're in that time period right now with Vatican II. John Paul II knew he would not be able to implement the full vision of the largest ecumenical council ever in the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church in his papacy. Mm. Benedict mm -hmm. also knew that, and Francis also knows that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so each of them had to discern in their own way, each pope since Vatican II, actually going back to Paul VI, has had to discern in their own way, what is the spirit calling me to, to hone in on, 
to help people really embrace the vision of the Second Vatican Council for the Third Millennium. And John Paul II was a brilliant bridge through the unfortunate death of John Paul I, um, the beginning of the work of Paul VI, which was quite astounding, by the way, the lifting of the excommunication on the Patriarch of Constantinople and several other uh, major events in his life were already sort of paving the way. But John Paul II, he focused on Christocentrism because that was the real foundations of Vatican II. Jesus Christ is not a historical person only. Jesus Christ is an event. He's happening now. He's here. He's in our midst, Eucharistically, primarily, but also in the sacramental life of the church, in the mystical body, in the poor. Jesus is here. That's why the Lord also gave us multiple saints to accompany the papacy of John Paul II, such as Teresa of Calcutta. Mm. She also embodied this notion of, of the spirit of Vatican II in the true sense, not in the paraconciliar sense, but in the sense of the original tension of the council, that what do we do to go and seek those who are broken to bring them into the mystical body of Christ? So John Paul II recognized he had to focus on the Christocentrism and anthropology of Vatican II. That was his wheelhouse. That was his gift. What is Ratzinger? Ratzinger, of course, is the liturgy. Mm. That has always been the source and summit of his life. He says that from the time he's a seminarian in his journals, that he had a deep love for the liturgy. He had a deep love for the sense of the tradition of the faith. And he stuck to that with his papacy and thank God that he did, because we're now still reaping the fruits of this modern doctor of the church. Pope Francis very clearly has been influenced by the notion of God him as well in social justice. Mm-hmm. So this is the the this is his wheelhouse, so to speak, as a South American Jesuit. We know his background. This is what he specializes in. He's openly stated before, I'm not, you know, a, the theological pope. That's not my wheelhouse. That's not what I do. I'm I'm a pastor of souls. This is the love of the heart of Pope Francis. And so recognizing that part of his gifts and his skill sets, that's what he's been more focusing on. Whoever the next pope is will have to make his own decision as well. So that's really what's happening there um, between all the papacy since Vatican II. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Father. Let's, uh, we'll take a, a short break. Sure. And uh, when we come back, I'd love to, let's talk a little bit about those four uh, major documents and kind of see a little bit about how the documents represent Jesus Christ, both to the church and to the world. Sounds good. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. And today we're with Father Blake Britton, author of Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church, published by Word on Fire Press. So thanks again, Father, for being with us today. Of course. And uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these actual documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, we're not going to be able to go through them all right, today, right. <laughs> but just a little bit about what are the four major constitutions? What are some maybe, what's what are two key ideas of each? Mm-hmm. You spoke about uh, John Paul II's teaching. John Paul II would often quote a couple verses or a couple lines from Gaudium et Spes, especially, right? Mm-hmm. It's only in the mystery of the word incarnate that the mystery of man becomes fully revealed to himself that we don't ultimately know who we really are or our real story 
until we see that story in Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Gaudium Spes would also have that beautiful line, without the creator, the creature vanishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a way, we come to know the creator perfectly, or, you know, I mean, most fully in Jesus Christ. And and I think in many ways, right, the council was really trying to respond to kind of this, what we now term post-modernity, mm-hmm. and this deep loss of conviction of moral truth, mm-hmm. uh, the conviction about the dignity of the human person, uh, conviction of the transcendence of really any tra- notion of transcendence, right? right? So, you know, could we just go through a little bit? I, I really appreciated, too, the way you took these four uh, and you suggested there's a way of you have a nice little image of concentric circles, yes, right? Yes. But that, uh, <laughs> tell us why. Um, why do you, you know, how do the four go together? I think you said you begin with the the, the liturgy. Always. Uh, so yes. how do we, what, what does it mean to begin with the liturgy, to begin yeah. in a, with Sacrosanctum Concilium? Yeah, just a comment real quick on the tone, if you will, of, of the documents in relation to post-modernity or what I call post-Christianity. Mm-hmm. So uh, because of the time and place in which we find ourselves, yeah. already beginning really in the Enlightenment, but of course reaching its full maturation through the destruction of socialism, communism, etc., in the 60s and 70s, even up to the 80s and 90s, the church understood through Vatican II that the way in which we address the world can no longer presuppose Christianity. And this is fundamental in understanding evangelization. Mm -hmm. Some people will draw correlations, for example, between the Council of Trent's anathemas and declarations along with Vatican II's constitutions. Mm -hmm. And why is there such a radical difference between the two? And it's not that one is more true than the other. It's that they were addressing a totally different time and place. In the Council of Trent, even with the heresy of Protestantism on the rise, you still had the presupposition of Western ideals, fundamentally Christian ideals. In post-modernity, we do not. So what we're doing is not even evangelizing a neo-pagan world. We're evangelizing a secular world that has lost its appreciation for transcendence, for beauty, for truth. Yeah. If, if I may, Father, yeah. that this is something I think a lot of people don't realize. In Vatican I, which people are familiar with often emphasizing that the Pope could speak infallibly, could mm-hmm. teach infallibly um, on right. very limited occasions, but but that he could do so. And then also uh, that we could come to know uh, the truth about God, both by reason and by faith, that God mm-hmm. exists and that he has revealed himself. Uh, but in that, the beginning of, and this is around, say, like, I think 1870s, mm-hmm. Uh, it's 150 years ago, but it basically says is that if we reject reason's ability to come to know the truth about God, which is already percolating for centuries yes. right, uh, by the 1870s, so basically we will eventually lose confidence in reason itself. Yes. And it basically lists a variety of social confusions and that we will no longer believe in a way that we have reason right uh and right. it's so interesting like and this is by the way written just before like nietzsche famously writes this right Vatic- in a certain sense nietzsche has nothing on <laughs> vatican one right but this idea so just so it's not just vatican two right a hundred years before the church is already beginning to notice that um right this de-christianization mm-hmm. is really going to destabilize right in a certain yes. sense human life human meaning 
yes. uh, human society. It will, and St. Pius X addresses it directly in yes. several of his writings, and including an encyclical. And you're absolutely correct that this is something that, that had been building up in the consciousness of the church mm-hmm. in the 150 years really prior to Vatican yeah. II. Um, and the council now, in a very magisterial and clear way, starts to address the fallout, not least of which of two world wars yeah. and socialist and communist revolutions, mm-hmm. both you know horrific evils that took place in the 19th and 20th centuries. So that being said, what's very interesting, and I do, and I do this in the book, is I draw a comparison between a paragraph in the Baltimore Catechism and a paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the CCC produced under, of course, St. John Paul II and uh, Joseph Ratzinger, and to see the difference on the same exact theological point. Okay. Not in, in the sense that there's a different theology. The theology is the same, but the way in which that theology is explained is so much more full and articulate in the new catechism. Again, not to say that the Baltimore catechism is less than it's not, it's actually a brilliant catechism. Matter of fact, I strongly encourage parents when they're catechizing their children to always start with the Baltimore catechism because memory is a great way to learn. But as we grow mature, the catechism produced by St. John Paul II possesses such an, an unbelievable nuance an articulation of the faith for a post-Christian world. It gives reason, like you just alluded to, it gives reason to the faith, sources. It helps us understand, well, does God exist? Yes, God exists. Okay, but what does that mean? What are the consequences of God's existence? Can I find that out on my own? What does it feel like when I meet this God mm-hmm. who exists? So this is the way that Vatican II is theologizing. It's no longer just stating truths yeah. as we did in the Council of Trent or in even the Neo-Thomistic period, but it was understanding that people needed to learn and encounter Christ anew. From, from the yeah. very beginning. Mm-hmm. And when you go through the four, especially the four major constitutions, you can see that from the get-go. It is really profound, actually, yeah. that Sacrosanct Concilium, which we'll start with, the first 11, 12 paragraphs of that document do not state a single rubrical or liturgical change. They are spent entirely on the theology of the liturgy. That is unique. Yeah. That is quite unique. That hasn't been done really since the ancient councils of the church. So going back to Nicaea yeah. example. Um, but Vatican II really addresses more than anything, why should I love the liturgy? What are yeah. its origins? Where did it come from? Why is it dignified? So They're- if I want to grow in my love of the liturgy, right? And the bishops mm-hmm. in the United States have called for a Eucharistic revival. Mm-hmm. I hear you suggesting a great place to start would be the first 11 Yes. The first 11 paragraphs or, or numbers, sections of Sacrosanctum Concilium really think, how do I fall more in love with Jesus Christ in the Eucharistic liturgy? And this, in a way, is at the heart of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's an exhortation I'll give mm-hmm. here and I'll give yeah. to, at the end of this uh, podcast as well. Read. Read Vatican yeah. II documents. But definitely uh, the first 11 paragraphs mm-hmm. in particular of Sacrosanctum Concilium are just beautiful. They're magnificent, right. um, as are in Lumen Gentium and Gaudium mm-hmm. et Spes. Dei Verbum is a bit of a different animal because its focus was a little different. It's also beautiful, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, but really, uh, Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes in particular are just so well written. Um, it's just magnificent. But Sacrosanctum Concilium, we always begin with the liturgy. Why? Because this is where Jesus gives himself to us in history. Uh, Christianity is not a faith of abstraction. It's a faith of incarnation. Mm-hmm. Jesus must be touched or else he's not real. This is something that uh, that's true in the Gospel of John. For example, after his resurrection, uh, when he appears and he says, see, I'm not a ghost. 
We see this actually amplified in all the synoptic gospels and in the gospel of John. Put your hands through the holes in my hands and my feet. See that I'm flesh and bone like you. Give me something to eat. Jesus is constantly reiterating his incarnation post-resurrection so that you understand in order to really know this savior, you have to be in his midst. You cannot just read about Jesus. You have to encounter Mm -hmm. Christ or else you're not a Christian. And this is pivotal when it comes to the liturgy. The liturgy is the place where Jesus discloses himself in history. It's where he gives himself to us. It's where we touch Christ Mm -hmm. and he touches us back primarily through the sacrifice of the Holy Mass. So when I say the liturgy, I'm not just speaking specifically about the Mass Mm -hmm. either. I'm speaking about the other six sacraments, sacrament of reconciliation, the anointing of the sick, baptism, etc. These are the places where Jesus incarnately meets us in history, where he meets us in our midst. It's also, of course, as paragraph 10 of Sacto Concilium says, the source and summit of the life of the church. And then following in paragraph 11, it says, there is no activity of Catholicism that is more important than the sacrifice of the liturgy. Now, that's a bold claim. That means it's beyond preaching. It's beyond evangelization. It's beyond social justice. It's beyond all those things. All those flow from the church's primordial responsibility, which is to give right worship and reverence to God. We see this going all the way back to the Old Testament with the book of Exodus. Why are the people liberated from the Egyptians to the promised land? Not for the land. It's for the liturgy. The purpose of the land is to offer the sacrifice, but when God commands Moses to speak to Pharaoh, the command is not let my people go so they can go to the land. It's let my people go so they might give me right due reverence in the desert. So the purpose of the liberation is right worship. This is what makes Israel unique. Of course, we are the new Israel. Lumen Gentium talks about that. The Catholic Church is the fulfillment of Israel. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. And so in that, we are the ones who God has given to, in his divine mercy, the right means of worship through his Son, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Sacrus and Concilium focuses on that intimately and hones in specifically the first 11 paragraphs. Now, moving on, of course, the question becomes uh, the primary uh, objective, if you will, of Sacrosanct Concilium is the notion of what they call active participation. And I'll end with this only because there's so much more I could say. Of course, yeah. Um, Of of course, I mean, I could go on to to say how, you know, Latin is supposed to be retained in the Latin rite, um, all the different changes that have been made in the quote-unquote spirit of Vatican II or not really in the spirit of Vatican II, uh, but we could save that for another conversation. Uh, but to really go to something that's quite positive and beautiful, Sacrosanct Concilium really revolves around, after building this beautiful theological vision of the liturgy, uh, this notion of active participation, which is to say, not that everybody should clap their hands and make Mass a sing-along. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a much deeper level, as Pope Benedict will elaborate in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy, active participation is a deep catechesis of the faithful on the nature and purpose of the liturgy, mm-hmm. which then allows them to feel as if they are taking part, which they're supposed to. And if yeah. you read the original patristic text of the sacred liturgies, go back, for example, the liturgy of St. James, the liturgy of St. Peter, etc. If you go to some of these original liturgies, you'll see that the congregation did have a very active role within the liturgy. There's this sense of community. And when I say active, I mean, first and foremost, they were incredibly educated on the liturgy in the ancient church. Mm-hmm. I think this was a result of the mystagogia, as well as the early uh, catechumenate way that was established primarily through Cyril of Jerusalem and others. But in addition to that, you also had this notion of 
the faith not being something presupposed, but something I had to take initiative to learn. So the ancient church had this deep sense of the liturgy, even above and beyond the post-medieval and the Renaissance and Trinidine church. Uh, it was just something very supple for them, something very intimate. Uh, and so Vatican II wanted to reclaim, in many ways, that understanding of the liturgy through this notion of active participation, the revision of the lectionary cycle. We don't talk about that enough. That's a huge deal. Yeah. Before the Second Vatican Council, there was a one-year cycle, and we didn't read the majority of the scriptures. Now there's a three-year cycle, including a two-year cycle for daily Mass. So if you attend Mass every day for over three years, you're getting over 70 80% of all the scriptures. That's incredible. So there are multiple, multiple reforms that were made through Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium, that really, uh, unfortunately, we have yet to appreciate in many ways. Um, we have yet to implement, but really do enrich our, our understanding and mystery of the liturgy. Uh, that's really uh, beautifully put. And uh, it reminds me, actually, I think the, right, that term actuoso participation, yes, right, correct. this actual active participation uh, began with, Pius X, I think it was the it first did. one to use it, Pope St. Pius X, and it was also the one to uh, lower the uh, age mm -hmm. of communion. Correct. Uh, and To combat uh, Jansenism. Ex exactly. Yeah, right. A lot of these different uh, renewals, and they, they certainly have, at times, been uh, the occasion of abuses. Right. But one of the principal Catholic responses to Protestantism, in a way, and, you know, in the Reformation, was that abuse does not take away use. No. Abuse does not take away proper use. We have to recover the proper use of our of the faith, and and Absolutely. I think trying to recover that is a beautiful is, is a great goal. And, yes. and in some ways, we could begin with ourselves, yes. right? You know, begin uh, first to uh, you know kind of try to follow and repent our own and try to participate more actively. Well, every um, Catholic should own the Roman Missal, yeah, and read it. Uh huh. Like they should know, mm -hmm. they should know the rubrics. They should know, mm -hmm. you know, that is the intention of the council. So that's something yeah. else I would encourage mm -hmm. people to do: buy a Roman Missal, yeah. study it, read mm -hmm. the Eucharistic prayers. The theology in the Eucharistic prayers and the prefaces yeah. are utterly superb. Uh, and all four Eucharistic prayers, there's another uh, very unique thing from yeah. Vatican mm -hmm. II is multiple Eucharistic mm -hmm. prayers. It's not abnormal. We had that in the ancient church, yeah. so it's not something radical mm -hmm. or new. But it is something that, that's quite beautiful for our own time, you know, yeah. so there's a lot of examples of that. Yeah, so so anyway, so uh, we... So we have three more, uh, yeah, you know, we, constitutions. We three more in five minutes. Let's do uh, it. No. Probably not going to be able to get through <laughs> them all. Uh, I'll just say for... Um, I, for me, Dave Verbum, I think, really is kind of the cornerstone. We begin with the liturgy, but Dave Verbum is the one that grounds everything because it says God reveals himself to us mm -hmm. through his word right, right. Uh, in Jesus Christ. And then that word that he communicates in Jesus Christ uh, kind of flows from that, right, the, sort, the rivers in a way of scripture and tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, right, the magisterium. And, you know, and, and right at the heart of that says, right, the gospels are, the historicity of the gospels cannot be doubted. Mm -hmm. We try, mm -hmm. this is, this is historic. We don't know, of course, not all scripture is historical because some of it's poetical, right. right? You know, and allegorical. Allegorical, and there's all these different elements. But I think that's such a key moment. But could you say uh, just a word or maybe uh, like one, what, what, what are, what's one key idea that maybe people should take away from, say, Lumen Gentium sure, on the dogmatic sure. constitutional church? And then one idea from, I mean, you know, there are many and you, and people can get the book and yes. uh, they can read a lot more <laughs> and then they can read the documents. But 
Newman What's one Gentium, you might say from each? Uh, is the hinge document of Vatican II, as it's yeah. often called, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true. The Second Vatican Council was not a council of the liturgy. It was not a council of the scriptures. It was a council yes. of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really trying to understand through the rediscovery of mainly patristic and medieval text yeah. that was taking place 150 years prior, starting in the late 1800s or early 1800s, rather. Who are we as the church? What does it mean to be the mystical body of Christ? Mm-hmm. This was actually preluded, of course, by Pius Twelfth in his own encyclical, yes. Mystici Corporis. Um, and so already we start seeing the groundwork of this being done in the papacies preceding Vatican II. But uh, Lumen Gentium, the document on the nature of the church, the essence, the mission of the church, it, it brings to the fore several terms uh, from ancient Catholicism that are now common usage, thank God, such as the notion of the holy and beautiful people of God. Mm-hmm. So that phrase, the people of God, is popularized from the ancient church, again, by Vatican II. A pilgrim people. We are a people on the way. So the church is in motion. She's not stagnant. She's not purely historical, but she is also a transcendental. She's going somewhere. She's on a mission. She's walking to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. She has someone laying in front of her. And that, of course, is Christ. That's someone who's laid hold. But there's someone else who's gone before us, too. And that's the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. And this is where chapter eight comes in, which is actually one of my uh, favorite sort of tidbits about Vatican II. One of the most hotly debated topics of the Second Vatican Council was the Blessed Virgin Mary and whether she should have her own document or Mm -hmm. be included on the document of the church. Now, that decision has huge ramifications, which most people don't think about. Why? In the decision of the magisterium to include the Blessed Mother in chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium as part of the nature of the church, what they're saying is is that Mary is not a reality apart from the Catholicism, Mm -hmm. but she in fact is Catholicism, which she is. The Blessed Mother is the embodiment. The best way to say it is that Mary is the church in person and as person, which is to say that when you look at Mary, when when you gaze upon her body and soul sharing in the divine life of her son through the assumption, what you're witnessing, of course, is the reality of Catholicism in the flesh. Mary is Catholicism because she's what Catholicism looks like. So when the human creature gets completely entirely to the divine, by the right divine, which is we are called to be as children of God. That's the Eucharist, right? Saint Augustine. Yeah, yes. If you look at his mm-hmm. reflections on the Theotokos, the God bearer, that's what he says. He says you're all Theotokos. You're all Mary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's Saint Augustine's claim. Yeah, you're yeah, all yeah. Mary. Uh-huh. So Christ yeah. is the totus Christus, the whole Christ head and body and Mary, so to speak, as the whole body yes, of, Christ, of Christ or bride of Christ. And therefore what we as she personifies the whole church and really our own vocations, right, which is to say yes to God the Father, yes to the bridegroom. And she's also what constitutes what we call the indefectibility of the faith, meaning mm. uh, the incorruptibility of the church. Why is it that the Immaculate Conception and Assumption must both take part? Because Mary is not immaculate only so that she may conceive the son. Mm -hmm. She's immaculate so that she may preserve the dignity of Catholicism itself as the church. So there must be one at the foot of the cross to accept the gift of the new Adam. And what's happening Mm -hmm. is that the Immaculate Conception, Our Lady of Lourdes affirms this, Je suis la conception immaculée, I am the Immaculate Conception, a very bold claim. But what Our Lady's doing in that moment is that she's asserting her Immaculate Conception is not something that happened to her, it's something that she is. And this is a very Mm -hmm. important statement. And the assumptions part of that as well, because in order for the church to be perfect and indefectible, there must be a member of the church sharing in the divine life in person as body and soul. Yeah, and fully without the mar of sin. sin. So in heaven right now, 
right? There are two bodies. There's the body of Christ, mm-hmm. right? Uh, who is, right? There's Jesus Christ uh, ascended into heaven, uh, who, of course, right, reigns as the king of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, as the incarnate son. Right. So both the eternal person of mm-hmm. the son with a full human nature and also Mary, yes. right? So Mary then is the kind, is the way in which that grace that is communicated to the church through the son mm-hmm. is fully received in Mary Yes, as the kind of, so we have in Christ and Mary, then the first fruits of the church existing eternally. Most certainly. Already. And that kind of gives us that sense of, um, like sense of like really hope and oh, joy yeah. that 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 the reality that we long for already exists not only in Jesus Christ but in the fruits of Jesus Christ that He has already raised right one to be at His uh, right hand. And this is what allows us too as Catholics that no matter how many scandals rock the church, mm-hmm. no matter how much may happen, yeah. can we say is the church perfect? Yes. Yes. Yes, she yeah. is. And in Mary, absolutely. <laughs> the easiest way of putting it that in a way we cannot. Anybody can intuitively, imaginatively, intellectually receive yes. is to say that the church is already perfect in Mary and will be perfected in us. Absolutely, because yes. there's a yeah. member of the church mm-hmm. who is saying yes to Jesus when I don't, yeah. and her name is Mary. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really, uh, that inspires yeah. our confidence. So that's, that's what beautiful. I would say about Lumen Gentium, yeah, yeah. you know, in many ways. Yeah, but. so um, so let's just, uh, we, we can, we'll have to have you on sometime, okay. another time since <laughs> so, we're, since so we're Dave all Baraboom, in Florida. Read yeah, it, yeah, yes, scripture, yeah, yeah, tradition, yes. got him his yeah, best, yeah, evangelize, yes, there we go. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so maybe just say a little bit about, you know, where do we go now? Um, how do yeah. we, you know, right, this was, uh, the council uh, finished in uh, 1965. Mm-hmm. So we're coming up on 60 uh, years, the 60 you know, years. Mm-hmm. What do we do today to help implement uh, the call to renewal and re-evangelization? Yeah. So there's a scripture passage I always like to invoke when answering that question. And it is, be as gentle as doves and mm-hmm. as cunning as serpents. Yes. Quite an interesting phrase mm-hmm. from Jesus. Uh, it always fascinated me. But what he's saying there, of course, is understand well the age in which you live, the problems that are facing that age, do not compromise your purity amidst it, yeah. but also be prudent and wise in how you're trying to convert it. That's basically what that phrase is talking about. The same is true, of course, when it comes to Vatican II. We need to be patient, humble, obedient, but we also need to educate ourselves and understand what the church is teaching. So step number one would be to become holy. The response of the church to every problem is what? A saint. That's always yes. the response of the church. Mm. If you look at World War II, what was the response? Maximilian Kolbe, John Paul II, you know. Yes, and Edith Stein. Yeah, Edith Stein, you know. Yeah. If you look at what was going on in the Renaissance Church, you had eventually Charles Borromeo, you had Philip Neri, right? Eventually you had uh, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. So the church can only respond incarnately. She can't abs- yeah. respond theoretically. And the way that she responds is saints. So step number one to reclaiming Vatican II is you just becoming a saint, which is no small task, <laughs> of course, but it's what we're supposed to do. It's what I'm trying to do. Uh, part of that, of course, is educating ourselves on the documents themselves. We really need to read Vatican II. You mentioned earlier Dei Verbum, that deposit of faith, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, both of which are on equal footing in that regards. And that was actually a hotly debated topic of Vatican II as well, um, is the relationship between tradition and scripture. But tradition includes ecumenical councils that as Catholics, we're not sola scriptura. So we're not only supposed to know the scriptures, we should, of course, but we should also know the church's magisterial teachings just as well as we know the Bible. 
mm-hmm. should know what did the Council of Ephesus say? Why yeah. is it important? Mm-hmm. What did the Council of Chalcedon say? What did the Vatican II say? I should know that stuff as a practicing Catholic. And if I'm not, I'm not enjoying the full gifts of my Catholic faith. So educating ourselves. And then finally, uh, what I call sort of the liturgical apostolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this is a phrase I adopted directly from Vatican II. Actually, it's used in Sacro Sancti Concilium towards pastors, saying that the primary responsibility of a pastor is to liturgically educate his people, because the liturgy is the most important part of a pastor's life, of course. But for us as well, are we educating ourselves on the nature, on the essence of the liturgy? And I'll end with this, and what I often call um, a demonic versus a Christian faith. We know St. James gives that very, very bold claim that uh, you have the faith of demons, he tells his community. And what he he's really articulating about that is this fact— Demons are amazing theologians. Uh, they, they know theology. They understand the truth. And a matter of fact, in every single New Testament encounter with the demon, they never lie explicitly. But yet Jesus always silences them. Why? Because knowing the truth and what's right is not sufficient for holiness. It's how you speak it and whether you believe it or embody it. That also matters. And so the Lord silences the demons because they're speaking the truth without charity. They're speaking the truth intellectually without a conversion of heart, without humility and obedience to the Father's will. That is also a danger for us as we educate ourselves on the nature of Vatican II, is that there's going to be this temptation to say, like, I know what the church teaches now, and I'm going to correct people who are doing it wrong, whether that be a bishop or a priest or my my pastor or my friends or what have you. That's, That's not right. That's a very dangerous faith. And if we listen to something whether that be a podcast, whether that be a talk or what have you, that leaves us more resentful, more anxious, and more angry after we're done, we know it's demonic, that it's not from the sacred heart of Jesus. Jesus only leaves us with hope, with joy, and with enthusiasm. He only leaves us in the direction of mission, of what we can do to continue growing in the, in the joy and the love of the Spirit. So I share that because that is going to be a cross for us to bear. We're amidst a generation that really um, is lacking that catechesis, and we're also amidst a time that might seem uh, turbulent and even persecutory against Catholicism, against the true ethos of orthodoxy. But along with that, let's make sure we don't fall into that demonic faith of just trying to spew out facts and data, um, the truth and quoting our catechism, but really noting very deeply with obedience, with trust and confidence, the love of the Father. And in the end, Christ is king, Mm -hmm. so everything will be all right. We know how the story ends, I mean. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. Uh, There's a beautiful line from St. Paul in Ephesians 4 where he says, let your speech grieve not the Holy Spirit. And I think, boy, I can, I definitely, I know that that, I know my speech at times has when it gives into resentment. Can I ask you three very quick questions? We're kind of running out of time, but I'd love (laughs) to just throw them out there. One, what's a book you're reading? A book I'm reading right now, I'm reading multiple. I'm going through von Balthasar's trilogy right now, which is actually 16 volumes. Yes. Um, But I'm doing the volume on the old, covenant or the old testament which is part of his theologique yeah that's great Mm -hmm. and uh what's a daily spiritual practice that particularly i know you have many as a priest but what's one that (laughs) you know particularly gives you joy well the eucharist goes without saying of course i celebrate i haven't missed a day of mass uh, once in my entire priesthood and that was because i was on a plane traveling Uh (laughs) and i couldn't do math with hour changes but um in addition to the eucharist it would, of course, be Liturgy of the Hours. Mm. Um, that is my bedrock. I love the Liturgy of the Hours, and that's something else I mentioned in my book, mm. Vatican II encourages the laity to pray Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah. Every Catholic should be praying Liturgy of the Hours. It will change your life. Thank you. Yeah. And what's uh, what's a belief you held about God at some point mm-hmm. uh, that you discovered to be false? And what was the truth you discovered? Yeah, so that happened when I was quite young, actually. Uh, um, it was Lent. 
I was 12 years old, and I remember going to confession, absolutely petrified uh, because of sin and thinking I was going to go to hell. And when I encountered the divine mercy the first time, mm. to see the true face of Jesus, to, treat, to see the true face of Christ, that radically transformed me in a very, very powerful way till this day. Um, and the way that I was treated in that confessional by mm. the priest, the way that he approached me, which was very Christ-like, uh, left a lasting impression on me of the Father and what, who the Father is. So that continues to be with me till this day. Great. Thank you so much, Father. And uh, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, for those who are interested, again, Father Blake Britton, uh, priest of the uh, Orlando Diocese, a uh, member of the Word on Fire Institute, his book, Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church is available at Word on Fire Press. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.